Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unlocking the Potential of Assessments, the show that delves into creating, delivering, and reporting on valid and reliable assessments. In each episode, we chat with assessment luminaries, influencers, subject matter experts, and customers to discover and examine the latest in best practice guidance for all things assessment. I'm your host, John Kleeman, founder of QuestionMark, the industry leader in assessment management software. And today, I'm really pleased to welcome Riz Khan, who quotes himself as a learning futurist first and global chief operating officer and vice president of training and adoption at SAP as second. He frequently partners with CXOs, executives, and leadership groups to help them understand the importance of corporate education and the power of user adoption. After spending more than two decades working in corporate education and training, Riz knows what truly drives digital learning transformation and user adoption best practices. In addition to his extensive corporate education and training experience, Riz is a certified project manager with more than 30 projects under his belt, a trained facilitator, public speaker, and corporate education technology evangelist. Welcome, Riz. Thank you, John. Uh, So tell me, you're now a learning futurist. How did you get into learning in the past? What have you started in that journey? Oh, no problem at all. Uh, First of all, um, John, let me just say um, what a great pleasure it is to be invited to this podcast. With regards to your question, where did it all start? My gosh, many, many years ago, I started life off as a training administrator for a training organization in the beautiful heartlands of, uh, of Wales. Um, and I was a, um, a training administrator that booked people onto uh, soft skills training courses. Um, and they varied from normal management skills through to anger management courses, etc. And I more or less did every role in that job. I uh, covered for trainers when they were off sick because I used to sit in the back of the classrooms and listen. I then moved into the training management role, training delivery role, training development role. So quite a, quite a lot of uh, experience in the training, development, adoption and assessment world. Why do you enjoy being in that space? What, what, what makes you excited by it? I think for me, the excitement has always been when people learn from me or my teams or from whatever I've done. So for me, there was never a greater feeling than when someone walked out thinking, hey, I got this, I know what I'm doing, I know what's, what to expect. I've been, I've been trained, I've been assessed, I, 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 I feel confident going forward. It was never, for me, it was never about the feedback sheets, it was never about, you know, um, trying to score numbers, etc. It was literally... What do you guys need to know? How are you going to get there? How are we going to measure it? And are you comfortable? And I think you also did some organizational change management as well. Yeah. So after the training and development career cycle, I then moved into organizational change management, worked for some very, very large organizations um, across both the UK, Europe, uh, Middle East, and uh, some other organizations within the global arena. So quite a lot of different organizations. And one of the things I think we'd love to hear during the session is how how do you change organizations? How do you change culture and things like that? Because I think that that's a big part of your job role and knowledge. Yeah, no, most definitely. So I think the only way to change an organization is through its people. Uh, There's no other way of doing it in my experience. So I, I worked with many different companies, um, some that were really tuned into their people, and those were the successful projects that I worked on. 
Um, and there were those organizations that really didn't care about it, their people. Not in the sense that, you know, um, they didn't care about the well-being of their of their people, but they didn't really care about the impact that change was going to have, that technology was going to have. Um, they, they didn't see it as a critical uh, factor within the project. Um, there were um, many, many times in, in organizations where I worked at, they didn't even put training on a critical line um, or assessments. They, they, that was like an afterthought, a nice to have. And, and I saw, um, unfortunately, I did see a few projects fail as a result of that. And I think you've been with SAP 10 or 11 years now. What do SAP do in the learning space? And, and another question, I guess, why did you move there? So um, for me, I, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll answer this the, uh, the other way around. So I moved to SAP, yeah, like you said, 11 years ago. Uh, honestly, feels like 11 months. Um, there have been certain types of roles that um, I, I've done at SAP. I mean, I started off as a learning architect, um, which is a consulting role. I moved into pre-sales, and now I head up the sales organization as the COO. Um, and what I love about um, SAP is that it is held on to um, training, adoption, assessment, change management, and everything in the way that it operates. So it doesn't just focus on selling software or just a service. It really does think about the people. You know, we have solutions that the people are the heart of it. For example, like our success factor solutions, it's all about the people there. But especially within our, you know, little community within training and adoption globally, SAP. Um, it's like a family. A lot of us have been there for a very long time. And once you come in, you stay around for a lot. Very passionate people. So we really, really enjoy that. How much more business value do your customers or organizations out there get out of systems if there's been more or better training? There's been a lot of studies on this, John. In 2018, um, we commissioned IDC to interview some of our customers uh, around this. Um, and again, we did the same in um, 2020. We interviewed about 950 SAP companies to find out how and when they spent money on training and learning, what the outcomes of the results were. And we, we found that the results were just stunning. Um, so those organizations that um, invested in learning had um, amazing results in the implementation of the project. They had amazing results in the um, key performance indicators of of the uh, the people on the ground. Uh, those that invested in in the learning had had amazing results in productivity, in innovation, in so many different areas. I mean, the statistics are out there, and I hope as part of this podcast we'll be able to. Um, I'd be more than happy to provide those statistics in, in more detail. So I think our listeners would, would lo love to hear if you can share any numbers. No, most definitely. You're, 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 they're, they're more than welcome. I mean, you know, one thing is to say, oh, yeah, you need to give 10% towards training of the total budget for, for, for your project. And, you know, it'll be a good investment. But we actually have numbers, right? We actually have great, great statistics around this. Um, and um, we, we, we've done, we, we will do an update on, on this as well, hopefully next year. Um, and I'm really looking forward to that as well and, and listening to what our customers are saying. And like I said earlier, for me, there's nothing better than our customers buying our solution, 
implementing it with the people at the heart, heart of everything they do and with them in mind. Um, and the implementation goes great. They're given good training. They're given good assessments that make sure that they really know what they're doing. Um, and then they leave with, you know, good knowledge. So I'm really excited about this. For sure. And where do assessments fit in on like a, a project to do change management or implement new software? I, I remember about um, eight years ago, John, I, I did a project within the nuclear industry um, and the organization, it was what was called an, a, an adopt and adapt implementation. So so basically a, a country, South Korea, was creating the SAP system to give it to our customer that was based in the um, in the um, EMEA South region. And basically what happened was they were creating the system and then this EMEA South organization was going to adopt it and then adapt it according to their needs. And I remember speaking to the chief nuclear officer uh, about the whole training, the whole people, the whole assessment piece. And he said to himself that he had been on many different nuclear projects and he had only ever had, had one project that had completely failed. And that was because the people had not been assessed fully on some of the um, you know, non-critical aspects of the system. Um, and he said he never repeated that mistake again. Um, and that was really, um, really good and enlightening to see that an organization was really investing into training, into um, assessments to a really, really high degree. Even, like I said, non, non-business critical, um, sort of non-business you know, uh, continuity um, critical, etc. So it was um, really, really good to see that. And um, they developed some amazing career opportunities from those in terms of uh, continuous development and, and these type of things. So, yeah, it was really good. So could you give any examples of other projects where training has really made a project successful or really hurt it because it didn't do well, either training or assessments? I remember working maybe about um, 10, 11 years ago. Um, I think I was contracting before, SA- before I joined SAP and it was a very large public sector organization with uh, around about 60,000 employees looking after one city um, in the center of the country. Um, and I remember that they wanted to roll out some uh, business intelligence training. And they took everybody three months in advance of the go live and took them into a cinema of, of all places. And I remember people sitting around with popcorn and drinks, you know, soft drinks, etc., going through this business intelligence training program on, you need to click here, you need to do this, you need to do that, etc. And when they came out of it, they were not assessed. There was no, there was, there was nothing. It was just like, okay, you've attended training, great. And then when the project went live, they literally fell flat because no one knew how to use the BI system or the business intelligence system because everybody had forgotten. Number one, it was three months ago before that. No one had been given any notes or anything. So I I saw that fail quite miserably. Equally, I um, I worked in a gas organization that that supplies all of the natural gas in, in the UK to all the different vendors. And they did an amazing job. They had a they had one of our esteemed partners, Ernst & Young, um, that was managing the project. And we uh, in SAP were responsible for the organizational change management, the training, the adoption, the assessments, etc. And that went really well. That was one of the very few budget uh, projects we work on that was on budget, on time, 
uh, with uh, some amazing people. And um, I'm still in contact with some of the amazing customers that we had and some of the, the partners that we used. Yeah, really great. So if somebody's listening to this and they're about to implement new software, new systems, what are the key good practices to do in training or assessing their people? I think, you know, one of the, one of the first things that um, uh, you should look at is a combined strategy of, you know, w- where do we want to go? How do we want to do this? And, and then a needs analysis, the good old-fashioned needs analysis. So the easiest way to be uh, to explain the difference between a strategy and a, and a needs analysis, because a lot of customers will shoot you down or knock it down and say, we don't need a strategy, we don't need a needs analysis. A strategy could be defined as if you came to painting a room, for example, a strategy would be, right, I would like white paint with some curtains, with some carpet and, um, and a sofa. That could be, uh, you know, an example. The needs analysis would look at, okay, what type of white paint are we talking about? Is it emulsion? Is it matte? Is it gloss? You know, what type of carpet are we talking about? Are we talking more about woolen? Are we talking about other natural products? Are we talking about a twist type of carpet, etc.? So it really brings out the detail. And what a lot of organizations do um, and, and where they fail is they don't invest heavily enough in the needs analysis. And once you've established the, the, the actual needs of the people that are going to be running the system, then to assess them is equally as important. So once they've gone through that training, to assess their, their knowledge is very, very important. So I would say this is the most critical factor, developing the content, consuming the training, et cetera, et cetera. All of that has its part. But I think this part here, the, the identifying of needs is the most important one. And just to clarify, we're talking about the needs for the software or the needs for the training that people have? The training needs of the people, um, the assessment needs of the people. We call it a a training needs analysis, but actually it's a needs analysis on training, on change, on uh, assessments, on um, everything else that comes in there. And and, and supposing you're starting off on a new project, putting in a new system, how do you do that needs analysis? Um, So you would start literally with... um, there's many different ways of doing it. One of the ways that you could do it is um, by um, speaking to the managers of the different functional areas, getting a perceived needs analysis, um, and then taking a sample of people if there's a very large organization, for example. Or you could send out um, a, a, an email. That's one other way. Another way of doing it is, is by using an assessment um, engine or uh, software um, to find out h- how much knowledge they actually have and then translate that into uh, actual needs. So almost do some tests of people to understand their digital literacy or other things and yeah. and then use that as a baseline to work out what training you need. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I, I, again, John, I've seen it in my, in my career some amazing things. So, for example, one of the projects I worked on way back in many, many years ago uh, again, it was for a central government organization, and they wanted to roll out uh, computer-based training to people. And so literally, they were gathering people and saying, right, have you done computer training? Do you know computers? And people were saying, yeah, 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 I've used a, I've used a computer before. And when we came to train them, uh, we would say things like, okay, so now if you take your mouse and you double-click on the screen, and we had people pick up the mouse and tap the screen twice. <laughs> so clearly no assessment had been done whatsoever. 
um, in terms of, you know, what was the knowledge, no, you know, no theoretical test, no sort of um, uh, practical test, nothing, uh, you know. And that was a, that was a disaster in the making. And, 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 the, and the whole objective was to try and get some good intelligence and data from that to say, hey, this is what the central government has been doing. And it turned into a little bit of a disaster. I mean, we managed to recover it. Uh, because we introduced some uh, mandatory assessments to begin with and then tailored our needs accordingly. And so you talked earlier about the example where somebody had done the uh, training three months in advance and that was uh, very unsuccessful. What's the right timing? I mean, if a system's going to go live on uh, a certain date, when should you start the training? Uh, I would say that normally uh, we advise uh, around about six weeks uh, in advance, depending on with SAP being, you know, um, an end-to-end business solution with all the different processes, depending on where you are with the organization. So we, we would normally say anywhere between six, to, counting down to four weeks in advance of um, go live. That's about a new system, but systems are changing all the time, SAP and, and other systems. Mm-hmm. How do you keep people up with the changes? Is there sort of training or an assessment approach there? Most definitely. So again, you know, our systems, uh, they're updated, uh, businesses make changes. So therefore, some of the, a lot of change requests are put in. Um, and, and, you know, we do a lot of assessments to find out, for example, ourselves, SAP, uh, use the um, question mark solution for our um, internal people and for our customers. So when you do an SAP certification program, um, you're using the question mark solution. Um, it's very important for us, for example, to see where our partners are, um, if our partners are, um, uh, you know, certified in the right solution because the, the the solutions are changing fast. You know, a lot of a lot of the the systems are now going from on premise into cloud, and there's additional uh, security things, for example, a different approach in terms of uh, implementing cloud, and and having um, you know a good understanding of the person's abilities. Um, by using assessments is very important to us as well to be able to implement projects and do these type of things. Going back to if you were a manager implementing new software, so it feels like doing a training needs analysis, potentially with assessments is is pretty critical, doing the training about sort of four to six weeks starting before it. Any other sort of good practices that you'd like to suggest to people? I would honestly say that uh, make time for a lot of people to practice and then make time for a lot of people afterwards as well to um, to formalize their knowledge through through assessments. I really, really believe in this one aspect that is ignored a lot, which is the assessment part. And I, and I don't mean, you know, we, we always, you know, like, for example, in, in regulated industry organizations, we have a lot of assessments. Um, that we, we, we give to the people there. There are people that, that are not working in a real strong government organization or an area of the business, but, you know, having an assessment for them is equally important. Uh, one, of the, one of the reasons being that, um, you know, it gives them confidence as well that, hey, I know how to use this system. There's also the true understanding from, from the organization to say, okay, this is money well invested. You know, we've trained them. They've done this assessment. Look at the pass rates. Look at the, look at the trends that we find through this data. Um, there's also, you know, mandatory ones that, you know, where you need to provide that type of information either to management or to the government or to some other body, et cetera. So, no, I think the assessment part, like I said earlier, is one of the pieces that a lot of people think it's a nice to have for me. It was always mandatory on all the, all the things that I did. Well, that sounds really good. Maybe we could move on a bit into the future and uh, how learning and adoption might might change there. 
and, and maybe we should just start with uh, your experience in the pandemic with, with SAP customers. I mean, have, have the way that people adopt and train uh, changed at all during the pandemic or is it largely business as usual? Yeah, sure. Let me set, let me set some context here. So SAP training and adoption um, is the largest training company in the world, right? Wow. So um, we, we, we keep, we've kept all of our um, training and adoption in-house, so it hasn't gone to our esteemed partners or it hasn't gone to third parties, etc., um, like some of the other software companies have done. So, you know, we, we certify around about 70,000, 80,000 um, people every year. Um, we run an immense number of classrooms um, in across the globe, right? So from every corner of the globe, we have a classroom which needs trainers. There's a whole supply chain there to make sure that the training manuals are there, um, all, the, all the facilities management, etc. So when COVID came along, this hit us hard, huh? Our classrooms closed down. Um, people stopped coming, obviously, and stopped uh, learning for a little while while we all got our heads around this whole COVID-19 thing. Um, and luckily, uh, of the very few organizations in the world, SAP, uh, we were ready. Um, we were ready because we had already introduced our virtual live classroom platform. We had already introduced uh, our award-winning platform called Learning Hub, uh, which is a one subscription, um, consume as much as you like, all of our content, including, um, you know, um, uh, videos and and um, uh, classrooms online, et cetera, with instructors, et cetera. So we were pretty ready in that sense. And um, it's been a challenge to try and work with our customers. Uh, but I would say a very, very large um, majority of our customers have, have gone into the virtual learning space um, and now our classrooms have started to open up. And, and, you know, the whole thing with the virtual area, John, is that, you know, it, it requires a different skill set. Myself, I was always in your face type of trainer. Mm -hmm. uh, and now to be a virtual trainer, not seeing your audience, not, not feeling that environment in the room is a completely different kettle of fish. But um, uh, and likewise, with, you know, with, 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 with assessments, um, and, and making sure that people have adopted the systems. This is also something now we've started to do quite strongly this year. We, we launched um, our certification in the cloud program where you can now um, register and certify yourself using our cloud solutions. So, yeah, I'm really happy with what we're doing with Question Mark. We're also seeing a lot of organizations do more virtual training. And obviously, if you're doing virtual training, you need to do a virtual assessment. And do you think that um, things will stay in this uh, virtual world, even when hopefully the pandemic is over? When I was with my customers, depending on the region that you were in, for example, if you went to the States, they were already pretty virtualized, right? Because it's such a mass continent. And uh, likewise with um, you know Australia, these type of places, uh, you know, strong internet presence, uh, virtual training. In the other regions, such as, you know, Asia Pacific, um, in the African uh, continent, um, there, there were issues um, with uh, technology in terms of speed, bandwidth speed, etc. Um, and there was a reluctance to even look at, you know, virtual training. Plus, you know, this whole, we're going to classroom, we're going to fly to a different city, we're going to live in a hotel. It's a nice outing for people. But um, this COVID-19 has made a lot of people realize that you can actually do training. You can, do, you can, you can you know, really help people to adopt. You can assess people virtually. 
Um, it saves a lot of money. So um, I don't think uh, there will be many organizations that will go back to the classroom as they used to. Um, I still think there will be, you know, still a handful um, that will do it. But I think it's definitely changed for the way it is. I mean, our virtual training has really shot up in the sky in terms of the volume that we're now putting out there. I don't, I don't see it going backwards to to the state it was. Uh, if anything, it'll get stronger and stronger. Plus, we've got a whole new generation of um, people beyond the millennials. We've got the Generation Zs coming in, and they're all about virtual learning anyway, right? So, sure. um, I think it's definitely going this way. And what about other things in the future? You call yourself a learning futurist. T- tell us, mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about how you see the future going. So, I think you know. Uh, the, the world is moving really fast. We already know that. We saw what, what one pandemic, could have, what impact could, it could have on the entire globe. We have some amazing technology out there. So um, if you think about how long we've had the internet, if you think about how long we've been able to do video uh, conferences, right? We've been, be, been able to do them, what, close to 15, 20 years, right? A long, long time. Uh, but only now it's starting to really kick in and people are starting to do Teams and Zoom and, and all the others, you know, all the other things. And um, I, I think, you know, the way the way we will embrace technology going forward is going to be um, quite rapid now with the with the pandemic. I think um, I think, for example, augmented reality will play a huge part in in the future of learning and assessment. So, you know, an example of that is one of our customers, our esteemed customers, BMW, for example. They have uh, an amazing augmented um, reality program, um, a learning program where they where they give you glasses that you put on, open the, um, the the engine up, and you can you're being told which parts you need to unscrew and work with, and these type of things. And assessments are done that way as well. And you know that's the future. That's the way we're going through, right? I don't see paper-based manuals anymore, you know. Could, could you explain a little bit about what is augmented reality similar to virtual reality? Uh, no, so completely, it's completely different. So if you look at it as three different technologies, you have the augmented reality, which is um, literally you're looking at the world as it is. And then when you put your um, glasses on or, or whatever you use to augment something, you actually see uh, technology uh, mixed in with the world. So, for example, I can take my iPhone, and there's many apps out there, augmented reality icons. Mm-hmm. I can take my iPhone, I can point it at the Statue of Liberty, for example, or the Eiffel Tower or Big Ben in London, and it will tell you on your iPhone what you're looking at, the history around it, and everything else. So pretty um, pretty awesome technology. Um, and then we have um, mixed um, reality, and this is something that's really, really new, and this is where uh, for example, um, you engage with the um, technology live within the world. So, for example, um, you're sitting on a bus, and rather than getting up and putting your 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 ticket in a, in a machine, um, there will be a, a reality that's um, given to you. You'll see probably a, a virtual kiosk with a virtual robotic person that would then take your your virtual ticket and and um, you know. And process it. So these type of things. So that this also mixed it. And then the other thing is the other technology around three um, D and and these type of things. Um, brilliant technology, but um, um, you know, still still to be advanced 
into um, learning adoption a little bit more. A good example of this is Microsoft HoloLens. So if any of you can get a chance to just type that into Google, you'll see, you'll see some amazing things. So that's really interesting to hear. Could I just clarify, I think what you're saying is that augmented reality and mixed reality are probably more realistic for the short to medium term, and virtual reality is probably more longer term. Is Did I understand that right? Uh, yeah, I, I would say that. I think I think in terms of adoption, virtual reality has still got a lot, long way to go. So if you remember, they started off in, what, the 70s, 80s, with those uh, crazy glasses we used to go to the cinema. Um, and, you know, this technology is still is still building. I think there's a huge future for for this reality as well um, in, in a virtual reality. But I think, you know, I think that uh, this, this has a lot of way to go yet. I think that's a really interesting perspective. Thank you. Thank you so much for... Uh... For joining us today, Riz, it's been really a, a pleasure to hear you, and I hope helpful to our our, our audience. Thank you, thank you, John. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, and uh, thank you everybody for listening. Please reach out to me directly at johnquestionmark.com with any questions, comments, or if you'd like to keep the conversation going. You can also visit the Question Mark website at questionmark.com to register for any of our many best practice webinars we host monthly. And a reminder also of training.sap.com if you want to discover more about uh, what SAP do on training. Thanks again, and please tune in for another exciting podcast discussion we'll be releasing shortly.